Hi, everybody. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott with hey. the finally recovering Dr. Shiloh from oh, Disco. Yeah. A lot of things, actually, right? <laughs> disco party. Say, you got disco fever. That's it. You had disco fever. Yeah, I threw a disco party yesterday. And then when we recorded the Sister Amy episode and I was coming down with something, it was COVID again. So, hey, we're all <sighs> recovered. But it was short. How many times have you had it now? Twice. Same here. Yeah. I've caught up to for... you. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's uh, let's manifest no more COVID. That would be great. Oh, okay. I thought this was a yeah. competition thing. Uh, no, 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 no. I do not have to lead. <laughs> I, I will be gladly lose that competition. Gladly. Right. But welcome back, everybody. We are at episode 125, and this is our monthly documentary review where we almost, I mean, so far, we haven't done anything that we had seen in the past, I don't think. No. And we keep getting like really great suggestions, but I also kind of want to revisit some of those oldies, but goodies. <laughs> well, we, we we can circle back around to them, I'm sure. But yeah. I, like you said, the suggestions from our Discord channel are yeah. like nonstop. Like we're never going to run out of material. No. Well, if we'll, we'll probably like kill a few of our listeners, but <laughs> you know. <laughs> Oh my God, will they stop talking? I know. Anyway, a welcome to everybody. And here's some updates on what's going on. We have a really cool event coming up really pretty soon for us, April 1st, which is a really hilarious day to have it on, to have it on <laughs> right. April Fool's Day. So we will be doing a live panel with Tammy and Bryce from one of our favorite shows, Hollywood Paranormal, to cover the true crime and paranormal events at the Barclay Hotel. And that is on Saturday, April 1st. Parapod Festival is a two-day event dedicated to all things paranormal, ghosts, ancient mysteries, archaeology, fringe science, world religions, metaphysics, crystals, true crime, conspiracies, alien abductions, alien visitations, and a lot more. You name so, it. <laughs> yeah, you got it. It's there. So whether your interest is obsessive or you find yourself mildly curious, there's going to be something for everyone with opportunities to share, to learn, to celebrate the paranormal. I actually know two people that are going to be there presenting, <gasps> which is very fascinating. Oh, cool. One of my casting bosses from a gazillion years ago, Craig Campobasso, has written several books on his experience in being an abductee, wow. uh, which is really fascinating stuff. It's like when I worked with him in entertainment, I had no idea this was part of his sort of other existence until I think really towards the end of our last project together, he was sharing with me. It's fascinating oh stuff. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we're also going to be having a booth. So please come say hi. You can go to parapodfestival.com to get your tickets. And then, of course, we're going to be at CrimeCon UK in June. So join us in London to see us on the main stage and on a panel talking about true crime documentaries. Go to crimecon.co.uk and use the code CONFIDENTIAL for 10% off your tickets. Finally, we have an easy code to remember as opposed know, right? to all of our advertisements, <laughs> which are like the craziest codes. They are. Well, our the name of our podcast is really long and That's it's true. probably hard to find something that fits. I'm like, do people, I mean, sometimes I have to double check how to spell confidential. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe it's not the easiest one, but just use your spell check. And I think, I don't think we mentioned it, but Parapod Festival is here in Southern California. It's yes. going to be in the Santa Clarita area. So that is going to be fun. Looking forward to it. Today, before we get to our recap from last episode, Dr. Scott and I want to extend our condolences to the greater Los Angeles. AAPI community as we had a mass shooting last night in the cities of Monterey Park and possibly Alhambra. There were a couple incidents. The Sheriff's Department is keeping pretty tight-lipped and we don't know if they're connected yeah. yet, but these were at Lunar New Year celebrations. 
and 10 people have been murdered. A lot is unknown this morning as we record, and the shooter is still at large. So we'll see how this unfolds, but let's hope there's no more violence. And again, you know, I know so many of you have had this feeling of it hitting close to home. And this is the east side of Los Angeles County where I'm from. So it it definitely feels that way. So just if everyone else can kind of hold this community in your hearts, we appreciate that. Yeah, one of the really sad, tragic ironies of this particular crime is this is a little spot, Monterey Park, and it actually has one of the lowest crime ratings for a large metropolitan area. It's about, yeah. I believe the population is 65% Asian. Mm-hmm. And then followed by a good percentage, but not nearly even half that of a Latino population. Yeah, yeah. And it's just had this sort of incredibly low crime rate for many, many years. So this is particularly horrifying to the community and keeping them in your thoughts and keeping rain on our speculations until there is evidence out there, I think is also very helpful. And thank you for for putting that in this morning. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, no, it's you know, been the first thing on my mind since I woke up this morning and, and heard the news. So so with our episode recap for last week, that was episode 124, Toxic Sports Parents. And wow, did we get a lot of feedback in response to these episodes? Yeah. We've had people that are like, this is my pet peeve. I was a coach. You've validated everything I've ever thought to, I'm a gymnastics parent and I promise I'm not like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just a lot of fun feedback. But in this episode, we presented three extreme versions of the toxic sports parent, parents who actually ended up with legal consequences for their criminal actions, but with wildly different sentences. And we had, you know, a dad who booby trapped his son's helmet to a mom who concocted a completely ludicrous murder plot to secure her daughter's cheerleading spot. We also explored the factors of narcissistic extension, disinhibition, and over-identification with sports teams and the activities of children. If you haven't had a chance to listen, please take some time and let us know what you think. Yeah, my my dear, dear sister-in-law, it was on a long drive yesterday down in the Southeast. And she said, I, I loved listening to the episode, but also texted me going, I promise we were not that when we had <laughs> right. both the kids in soccer. And I was like, no, I know that wasn't, wasn't you. But she said also, you know, she didn't witness anything as, as bad as the criminal examples that mm-hmm. we share, but definitely some just outlandish behavior actions by parents. And that was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So this has been going on yeah. for a while. Well, I think it's being addressed a bit. You know, I know someone sent us the t-shirts that AYSO puts out about, I can't remember the verbiage now, but it was like, your job is to cheer, my job is to coach and, you know, sort of trying to bring a community awareness to like, just mind yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was very, very interesting. So so as we jump into our documentary review, let's talk about just what we're watching or listening to these days. Since I had COVID, I watched a lot of television. Highly recommend the movie The Menu on HBO. It was very good, very dark. I watched a lot of dark stuff. Some was like, meh, and this one was was the best. I also watched Don't Worry, Darling. Did you get to watch that one? No, I like. I felt like it was sort of, I heard it was like a bad takeoff of The Stepford Wives. And I was like, hmm. Yeah, I really want to re- revisit that. Although I love Florence Pugh. I think she's really amazing. Yeah, it was good. It was nice to, of course, just kind of live in the world of Palm Springs. Yeah. <laughs> that was very curated, which is obviously part of the film. But I also binged all the seasons of Barry 
on HBO. I just did an HBO field day, which I had never watched. I'd heard wonderful things about it. And it was such a delight. And I think there's one more season coming out and very much look forward to that. As for podcasts, I'm very much enjoying Talk to Me, which is all about how crisis and hostage negotiations began in the U.S. in the 70s in New York City. It's produced by Jim Clemente. And what I love about it is they have a ton of original audio from the detective and the psychologist who started the unit in NYPD. Wow. And that sounds awesome. It's it's these lectures that they give you little snippets of. But, you know, all these years later, being someone who studies CNT crisis negotiation. It's just a lot of it just holds up. And to the fact that they had a psychologist, he was a cop there as well, but he was a clinical working psychologist in his off hours to have him, you know, fold him in as part of this was really, you know, a huge milestone for this work. So it's just something I'm kind of nerding out on right now. Oh, that's cool. What about you? Well, I'm all over the place as well. I'm glad you said Barry because we had started the first season Mm -hmm. and I think gotten into the second season and then, you know, just got distracted by something else. And we went back and started catching up because I... And for those, for anybody who hasn't watched it, just the concept is is really clever. It is a hitman played by Bill Hader, an incredible actor and and impersonator from Saturday Night Live. He doesn't yeah. do any impersonations. He's not overtly funny. He's he's really playing someone who probably is neurodivergent. Yeah, and very depressed, like this depressed yeah. hitman, really. Yeah, wildly, wildly depressed, and has some like attachment disorders, and like is not really attaching yeah. to, which is very much plays into the development of the character. But he just decides that he wants to be an actor. Yeah, and it's sort of it's a it's a takeoff on Hollywood. But my first casting boss, Allison Jones, who I talk about here all the time, who is a genius. I mean, she's cast all of your favorite movies and TV shows. I mean, oh, yeah. She's just a brilliant talent scout. She finds the most amazing people. She plays herself. They finally convinced her and she's very, very shy, very shy, very much an introvert, wildly, wildly smart. And one of the most hilarious people I've ever met in my life, like working together with her, I would, we would laugh so hard that we'd have to lay on the floor. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not exaggerating. So well, and she- I'm, I'm watching Barry. I'm texting you. I'm like, oh my God, Allison is fucking hilarious. And you're like, <laughs> what? She's uh, in it? <laughs> because I didn't get that far. And of course, she's never going to blow our own horn. Right. So she never told me. So she shows up herself as herself. I think in, in both season two and season three, they're very short scenes, but we just, Dan and I played them over and over again because there is no one on the planet that says the word asshole like Allison can. There is so much anger. <laughs> behind her saying that asshole he's an asshole and i you know witnessed that i mean she was never she's always incredibly respectful to actors and incredibly respectful to me as a an employee and very patient with me so So please go watch it if you get a chance i'm gonna i'm gonna post that clip of her saying asshole i'll put it on our discord (laughs) i also watched the prequel to the witcher because i'm into all that weird stuff and i think i may be the only person watching it everybody (laughs) else seems to hate it i thought it was great michelle yo never disappoints and she's great how thick and fantastic that that this woman is coming into her prime, yeah. being nominated for all these awards for all these different things, finally being recognized in you know, the sixth decade of her life or the fifth decade of her life. It's yeah, it's she's amazing. badass. I love her. She's totally badass. And move over Orlando Bloom because there is a new hot male elf in town. His oh. name is Lawrence O'Furin. 
dude, just please keep the ears, keep the ears. They it's really, really work for you. They really work for you. My dad started that. So we, oh, I've watched a couple episodes while he's been here. It's just the action scenes are really, yeah. really well done. As for listening, you know, I thought I'd be able to give up my addiction, but I'm back to missing and the vanished. Oh. And I just, I, don't know why I'm so addicted to those shows, but it just, it's chilling almost it's, like I just, you just keep thinking, why are all these people disappearing? Yeah, you I was going to say, there's a theme here with what you're going back to, to listen to. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I want to disappear. <gasps> I don't know. I have a book on that. Remember? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if I could, I don't, we did a show. I don't think it's easy to do anymore. It's not at all. I, that book was written a long time ago and I think it would be very, very difficult as we've talked about in the past. Okay, so we hope you we added to your list of things to listen to and watch that ever-growing list. But I know a good deal of you have already watched Don't Pick Up the Phone on Netflix. It's a three-part docuseries directed by Sarah Mast. Looked on Rotten Tomatoes and they only had an audience score, which was 42%. Wah, wah, wah. They didn't even have a score for just like their reviewers. So take it for what you will. And then we'll, of course, we always give our two cents at the end, what we thought about it. Right. Now, I'll also say that other places are rating it much higher, like Got IMDb, it. you know, a couple of other places are, are rating it higher. I do think that it's not, even if you're a fan of true crime, I don't think this show is for everybody. Mm, I agree. I think that people were not exactly what it was about because it doesn't, it sounds like a horror movie title. You know, you really have to to actually dive deeper to find out what the documentary is about. And I, again, I mean, I kind of love this and I'm maybe a little bit chagrined. I came in this to watching this ill-informed. Okay. So I, yeah. I had, I was completely like, well, wah, 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 what a bunch of idiots. And then you realize the extent of the horrific sexual assault that takes place. Yeah. And yeah, I, I came away from it, actually. I went in dismissive and I've come away really disturbed by go. a number of things, including the legal system, because this is the one that does not give you a happy resolution at all. No, no, it's definitely going to. I'm sure you all felt pissed off too. So Don't Pick Up the Phone is described on Netflix as, quote, follows the horrifying story of a hoax caller who targeted restaurants across the USA. Posing as police officers investigating a theft, the caller instructed managers to strip search young female employees who he said were subjects. So with this, despite all of the research done for the documentary, we really don't get to see the extent of exactly how many of these calls were attempted. Because, I mean, it's documentary. They got to hone in and focus on yes. a little bit. And this really took place, they think, over a 10-year span, like 94 to 04. And that's just what's known. So who knows how many calls there really were over the decade. And over the development of this perpetrator skill, he really had a technique that convinced unwitting and arguably ignorant and unquestioning fast food managers to violate the body autonomy of male, but primarily female victims here. And for many of the victims, what began as a humiliating accusation and then strip search escalated into sexual abuse and at least once rape. So it's when you said this sounds like a horror story from the title, when you get into it, it really is. You realize it is. Yeah. Yeah. 
the documentary introduces you to several characters, mainly the victims, and you're watching some incredibly disturbing closed circuit television security camera footage. But the storytellers are two detectives, one from Mount Washington, Kentucky, who you're seeing as an, an older male. And he's talking about being a rookie detective when all this hits the ground back at the time it happened. And he makes it his mission because on the surface, I'm sure like when he finds out what's going on or the, the description of how it was called in, he probably already had like, well, what kind of dumb bullshit is this? So he realizes in walking in that he has a really startling connection to the McDonald's employees that assaulted. And what he uncovers is hard to believe on a number of levels because the documentary includes testimonies from investigators, victims, and all the people who were duped into committing these strip search crimes, as well as the attorneys on both sides. Yeah. So it's it's pretty well-rounded with who they talk to. So for the purposes of research, if you want to do a little bit more on your own, you can search the term strip search phone call scam. And really, you'll come up with this being further defined as these series of incidents that mostly occurred in rural areas of the U.S. over this period of 10 years. And like we said earlier, there could have been earlier training and maybe experimental calls as a perpetrator was developing his assault technique, basically. But what wasn't covered in the documentary, the crime also includes grocery stores, video rental stores. So you can tell that if you dive in a little bit more, this person had been at it for a while. And really, by the time he got to these... Yeah fast food restaurants, it was kind of the the sweet spot, like the perfect victimology. It feels exactly like what you're describing. I think that he was able to really zero in on fast food restaurants, realizing that they're very fast paced. Yes. And he would hit them during high customer hours so that the manager would be scrambled. The manager would be like pulled in a number of directions and maybe was not going to be thinking clearly. So the actions that take place within the context of these quote unquote hoax calls, and I should I should say, frankly, that I don't agree with calling them hoax calls at all. It really actually bugs me because there's definitely the action of an individual impersonating a police officer. And there is a hoax being perpetrated. But the big thing here is that each of these calls that were not quickly terminated ended up instigating a third party sexual assault, which in itself, I know, is really hard to wrap your mind around and probably a factor in why the documentary is not as successful or highly rated as some of the others, because I think it's people are kind of like, well, what do I do? with this. Yeah. Well, and and let's let's get into that in a moment, but I want to just lay the foundation really of right. yeah. how far this went. So episode 1 really hones in on this Mount Washington, Kentucky incident in which a female manager takes a call from this supposed police officer or detective. He calls, he says, "Hey, there's been a theft. The suspect description that I have is a young female employee." Kind of gives some generic, you know, petite brunette, what have you. And of course, there's going to be someone on the shift that meets that criteria. The manager then calls her in and then she is told, hey, the police can bring you down to the station and interrogate you and search you there. Or they're saying, I can basically just conduct a search here, rule you out. And I mean, sounds totally reasonable up until that point. And I don't see why any, especially a 18 year old, like in this case, wouldn't just go, yeah, like, search me, pat me down here. We don't need to get the police here because I didn't do anything. You know, it, it sounds like it's going to be taken care of very quickly. So I want people to think of like what 
the mindset of individuals in all of these roles, like where they're at, where it starts at least. And then another manager is brought in to sort of assist. They cover up the window so the other employees can't see what's happening. But basically he then, the police officer is instructing the manager that she needs to remove her clothing piece by piece to the point to where she's eventually completely naked. And they leave for a little period of time. And again, this is all on CCTV. So I certainly hope they had the permission or I don't know how much, you know, documentaries really get permission from people, but she wasn't like interviewed for this documentary. They're just using this footage when we can talk about that later, how we feel about that. But you know, they're, you're watching this video and she's sitting there trying to hold an apron over herself, clearly traumatized, like in tears, trying to like this apron that barely covers like anything, just trying to tug it down. It's really sad. What were you gonna well, say? I was going to say also that it's not just, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's not just that she was instructed to remove her clothing piece by piece. Her clothing was then removed from the office, right? wrapped up along with her purse, her keys and her shoes and put in her car because yep. that's what the supposed cop on the phone is telling them to do, which is I'm reliving my experience of how stupid could you be? Hmm. I mean, I get it. I get that there's like authority and coercion going on, but you, I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling how anybody could fall for this level. Yeah. And you're talking about something very minor when we look at the totality of this. So the, at some point the manager is like, I have to get back to work. Like you said, this is a very busy, fast paced business. She has to get back to her employees and the cop is still on the phone and tells her, well, do you have a man in your life you can trust that can just come sit with her so we can get there and like check this out for ourselves because we're not convinced. Until we get there. Right. And which has now gone on for like three hours because they're supposedly shorthanded. Come on. Come on. Mount Washington, Kentucky can't be that big that they can't send a, a unit over. So the female manager calls her fiance and has him come down to sit with this girl so she can go back to her job. And now he's on the phone. I, I mean, and yes, I know this is a process and we're kind of reliving this all together. But like, if you're fucking detective on the phone that has three hours to be on the phone, just come down here. <laughs> what? Right? Yeah. Again, hindsight, we are totally on the outside of this bubble. So this man comes down and now he's on the phone with the detective and the caller starts telling him, well, have her do jumping jacks and have her run in place because then something might shake loose that she stole perhaps that she has hidden away on her body. So all of that, again, caught on video. It's horrific. And then it gets even worse. He asks the, the man to have her lay across his lap. He spanks her. He also has her sit on his lap and to check her breath for alcohol, has them kiss. And then finally... We get to the worst of all of this, where he instructs the man to have her perform a sexual act on him. And it's just, you know, our heads are exploding at yeah, this you're, point yeah, as viewers. Absolutely. So again, this is all caught on video. And and the the detective is saying the same things we are as he's sitting there watching this. But you hear some audio from the victim, and she's talking about being 18 years old, growing up in a military family, a deep respect for authority, like you're told to do something and you do it. Plus she's held hostage, essentially. Like you said, her keys and clothes, what is she gonna do? Like run out of the restaurant with a apron covering her front? But yeah, I mean, there's these seemingly unbelievable pieces to this and you start to get the flavors of like other scams that we have 
talked about where we sit back and we go, geez, how did that person fall for that? You know, whether we're talking about MLMs or cults or all the other endless types of scams that are out there that we've discussed on this podcast, it really is giving those same feeling. So I think, you know, just taking this moment to reflect on as a viewer, how it felt and what our responses were, because you sit there and you go, oh my God, how can someone, and again, like I'm talking about the man now that's in the room with her, how can someone ask another person to strip and how did that person comply? And this isn't just buying ugly leggings because you drink the LuLaRoe Kool-Aid, like this is elevated to unbelievable areas, but then you immediately sort of simultaneously have way more empathy because of the type of victimization that's happening here. It's so horrible. Yeah, I think that in that particular example, part of the egregiousness of it that results in the sexual assault, the actual rape, you know, Mm -hmm. because a rape does occur here, is that a third party came into this situation, this scenario, supposedly a trusted individual, you know, you can you can make all of the arguments you want to all all day long about Milgram, about coercive control, about everything we're going to talk about as far as the psych issues. But when it comes down to you're on the phone with a cop who then tells you to kiss the person, yeah, to spank the person, to have sex with the person forcibly. Like, I'm sorry, all bets are off right there. And thankfully, there was some resolution in that particular part of it, but not nearly to the level that you need. Because again, this was a very triggering episode on a number of levels. Sure. Yeah, it's, it, it certainly is. And I, I'm sure the audience feels the same way. I mean, I think I just came away angry, clearly. You could probably hear my voice. Well, then we move on to the meat of the investigation, which is really stumping this detective from Mount Washington. But then he finds out that there are other instances of this type of event happening across the country. You know, he's, he's really, he's dedicated. And one of yeah. the reasons he's dedicated is because he knows the victim. The victim is the daughter of someone who lives on his street. So now he has a personal connection to this event that maybe could have been brushed aside by a detective who didn't take it as seriously. So he connects with another detective who's from the Northeastern United States. I think he may be from Boston, who's also looking into similar cases. And they're they are really great. They do really care. And they're both livid about what each of these victims has gone through, but they keep coming up empty, but they stay very tenacious in their investigations and their work. And finally, finally, they are able to track down camera footage from one of the stores where phone cards were purchased. And then they realize that the perp is likely law enforcement due to the pants he's wearing Mm -hmm. when he buys the cards. Yeah. So there is a lot more as well. First, they had to narrow it down to the locations. They were on with the phone company all the time. The phone company was saying, these numbers don't exist. And then the phone company goes back, wait, they do exist. They're attached to phone cards. And then there's more information that comes up about the numbers on the phone cards that we'll talk about in a second. Yeah, it it was a lot of just tenacious detective work, like you said, to get to that point. And then in episode two, the narrative expands to include another victim, a young woman who at the time was living with her twin brother, both of them having grown up with what's kind of implied to be either a very modest financial background, if not even more challenging than that. And the two of them just seem to be exceptional young people. However, with determination and grit to put themselves through school while holding down jobs and sharing 
a trailer and you just, this one was super heartbreaking for me, even though I feel like it was just sort of a a drop in the bucket because you see how it impacted each of them and the brother talking about his sister. So her experiences take place not at a McDonald's, but while she's working at a Taco Bell and she is subjected to much of the same treatment, although thankfully not going as far as the example that is given in the first episode that took place at a McDonald's. And this one is stopped just by chance from going as far as the other one did by the entrance of a male coworker who was also a young man at the time. He was in his early 20s. So he enters the office because he's trying to figure out what's going on because the whole place is just in disarray when he walks in and he is clearly just shuts it down and it's it's interesting to me because i mean not that i can immediately determine that this is a stable or constant factor in this sort of paradigm of what's happening but it seems to me that when a third party observer enters into the situation, that observer can have a clean view of what is happening immediately and shut it down. And that's different from the male friend or the fiance that's brought in the first episode, because he's coming because his fiance told him, I need you to do this. He's walking into an alien environment. He doesn't know how things work. Whereas in this situation, this is a young guy who goes, this is bullshit. This is yep. not right. This is not. And maybe he even has had some experience with law or he knows somebody that works in law enforcement and knows that a police officer is not going to call you. A police department is not going to call and do something like this. Right. Right. Yeah. Thank goodness. It was nice to hear. I'm glad they tracked him down to talk to him because he was like, what the hell's going on? Like, hang yeah. up the phone. So, yeah, like you said, the, the sexual assault was shut down, but you really get the ideas how the repercussions lasted for years for her. Again, you talk, her brother talks about how after this incident, she just was a different person. And she, I think she ended up quitting her job and quitting school. And, you know, for these young people who had overcome so much and were working so hard, this was just so embarrassing and shameful for her that it completely changed her life. And if that wasn't upsetting enough, I mean, you get really, really pissed off when you hear about her trying to pursue litigation and how the judge is essentially telling her, like, you should have known better. This is not going anywhere. This is where my blood started to boil. Can I read the, yeah. the ruling? She shares this. She reads it off of her phone and your your heart is just breaking. She only reads part of it. And I'm going to actually go back because the judge's ruling is so awful. And he is quoted as saying, tragicomically. <laughs> so he's saying tragically and comically. Is it a he? The, a male judge? I don't know. Actually, I actually, you know what? I feel like I thought it was a female judge, but I can't remember now. Well, let's find that out because that would be even more interesting in here. So tragicomically, counsel literally plays up her naivete for litigational advantage. Perhaps because of her background, she was an amazingly innocent young woman at the time of the incident occurring. It was important to her to be good. She also had a tremendous respect for authority. Unfortunately, these very qualities allowed her to be victimized by the defendant. So then the judge goes on to say courts should not be used to propagate a culture of victimology entitlement that degrades the very sense of individual responsibility and hard work on which this great nation was founded. The best lessons learned are usually the most expensive. At tremendous expense, plaintiff hopefully will have learned to think for herself. Mm, Jaw-dropping. Blood boiling. (laughs) And then like, and she's reading it. Like she's, yeah. I mean, I'm sure she's probably maybe, maybe some of the edges have been worn down a little bit for her over the past decade, but yeah. wow. 
yeah, let this be a lesson to you, young lady. You need to grow up and not be so naive. Yeah, and it's kind of funny. It's kind of mm, funny how your comment. defense attorneys were trying to set this up as you being so naive, like we're not buying it. It's That's basically so what the judge is implying. So she goes on to experience clear symptoms of PTSD to the extent that she has to withdraw from school and quit work. Like Dr. Shiloh said, her life, her career, her education are all stalled for nearly a decade. She abandoned her plans to attend the University of Louisville, where she was going to become a pre-med student. Her twin brother other shares his ongoing emotional distress on witnessing his sister's experience, his guilt of not doing more, not being there to intervene, and then witnessing the fallout of her experiences. He provides a description of her going to a dark place and exhibiting what we know are classic sexual assault victim reactions. She didn't want to talk about it because then it's not real. Mm. And then in a later interview with ABC News, she was finally able to share that after the experience, she felt dirty. And I'm putting in quotes, felt dirty. The experience and less than completely successful treatment has affected many areas of her life. She shares that in the making and maintaining of friendships, it's really difficult because she can't allow anyone to get too close to her. Yeah. Just tragic. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, again, I think with her, we see her first person account and her being interviewed and obviously agreed to do so. And I I think it was done very tastefully. You know, I think a theme that we've talked about with these documentaries is just kind of looking at how much they're letting the victims tell stories. Yeah. And I think this was done well with her. She seemed like she went as far as she wanted to go and what she was sharing, but it was very, very impactful. So yeah. I want to ask you about this because you're still working in that milieu with paraphilias to a certain extent. Is this is this an, an, a type of voyeurism? Can we can we say it's connected to voyeurism? This is really interesting because you have this sort of auditory voyeurism or auditory exhibitionism sort of happening in a way. And I have never heard of it being sort of codified in this way. Clearly, this has to happen. You know, when we talk about voyeurism and exhibitionism, which generally those two paraphilias travel together, if someone is exhibiting signs of one, they usually have signs of the other, but it's all about consent, right? So you can be interested in maybe watching someone doing a sexual act or watching someone naked, but maybe you have that agreement with that person, if they're your partner or what have you, that's not true voyeurism or criminal voyeurism, because when it's criminal, it means you don't have the consent of that person to be watching them in that state. Same with exhibitionism, right? Someone might like to really let everything, you know, hang free and walk around and maybe it's even sexually arousing. But if your sexual partner is fine with that and they know it's happening, again, doesn't rise to the level of clinical or this paraphilia and certainly not criminal. But the second you surprise someone or you do this without their consent, then it does change over into that. So that's what I'm thinking about when I'm watching this documentary and I'm thinking about the type of sexual crime that this is, even though the person is just on the phone. They sort of are manipulating consent in a weird way, but you know it's not truly there because the person is being duped by what the situation is. And he, the perpetrator, it may not be a sexual satisfaction, but they are definitely getting stimulation from this. Oh, I think he's definitely getting sexual stimulation I would think so as well. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure it becomes a part of his euphoric recall for him. Absolutely. For masturbation fantasy. I mean, yeah, he's making these calls. He can't do it while he's standing at a payphone, but... Yeah. So 
have I ever shared the story on the podcast of the phone call I got when I was working at the clinic? Mm -mm. Okay. So I was working at a clinic. It was all sexual offending treatment. And we would take, we had our contracts with our government agencies, but we would also take what we call fee for service clients. So sometimes if someone was put on like the lowest level of probation for what the court deemed a more minor sexual offense, they would have to call around and find their own treatment. They weren't oh, yeah, like- yeah, I remember that. Yeah, they weren't I given had, a like, list. I think I had like four fee-for-service clients while I was there. Yeah. Yeah, and occasionally we would get people who are like, hey, I think I have a problem. A lot of times it would start with, you know, maybe pornography or addiction, something not necessarily criminal, but they didn't know where else to call. And clearly we specialized in this. So being the clinic coordinator, I would get these calls all the time and and screen them. And there was one that my, my front office staff had put through to me. And this guy said, you know, we were on the phone for a while, but he was talking about, you know, I do have some compulsions. There's nothing criminal that I've crossed over into, but, you know, I just don't know where else to turn. I want to learn more about your services. And specifically I learned, which, you know, I, I have to know enough to be able to say, yes, you're a qualified person to be here for our treatment because some people just are not. And so we're able to really hone in on the fact that he would masturbate to people that he would speak to, but they were unsuspecting. So there wasn't this consent piece. He would just kind of keep them on the phone and masturbate. And then that was it. So it kind of has the same like weird consent thing to it, but the person is unknowing. It's not like they know he's doing that. So I, we're, we're talking about this. He's pretty transparent with me about this. We talk about the ways in which, you know, our services can be offered. And so basically, you know, at the end, I'm like, Hey, so do you, you think you want to come in for an assessment or for an initial session? And we could probably get you in next week. And he goes, Nope. Remember that thing that I said I liked doing? I just did it and thank you. So basically I had been duped by him. Yeah. There's very specific fetish or paraphilia and he had been masturbating while I was talking to him. So I think, I think that that's interesting that he, that part of his stimulation or part of his goal in that call was to let you know. Yeah. The at reveal. the very end, yeah, the reveal. It's like a big reveal at the end. Because when I was supervising a teen crisis line over at Cedar sinai Teen Line, wonderful, wonderful organization with a really great program providing counseling peer services. So these are teenagers that are trained how to, be, you know, provide support, resources, reflection to other teens who call in. And we would be there as licensed professionals and adults to be on the phone calls with them as well, to yeah. give them direction and also to push the disconnect button when somebody did something like that. And that was way too common. I mean, I, mm -hmm. and it was never, they would, it, you always knew it's like, well, I'm not comfortable talking about this with a guy. Could I speak to a girl? I'm like, uh, oh, that's, we go. Well, I know where we're going with this. But that was a very common thing where they would talk and, and very draw the call out as long as they could. And at the end say, thank you for getting me off. And you know, yeah. the, the young women that I was working with who were all phenomenal, they would just be like rolling their eyes. And I'm like, I'm so mm -hmm. glad that you're here to do this for the people that need help for the kids that need help. But you poor things having to put up with this kind of BS, but well, and they were very resilient. It probably, you know, to a lot of our audience members, I mean, I'm sure this sounds really shocking, but these are like regular conversations I would have with people every day, right? Like talking about their sexual interests was my job. But afterwards I hung up the phone and I sat there for a moment and 
I felt dirty. I did. And I remember walking over into my supervisor's office, the director, and I just plopped down in the chair across from her. And she's like, what? Like Shiloh, I never see this, like, look from you. <laughs> and I told her what happened. And she was so empathetic and so warm and lovely. And we just talked it through and processed like you should when you're a postdoc or anyone really, and just validated what I was feeling. And, you know, it, it never happened again that I know of, but yeah, it, it was a, it was definitely one of those things I'll never forget from that period of my life, yeah. <laughs> that work. Some other terms, you know, I think that come up when we think about what's going on here is just, there's this issue of consent, but what about sexual coercion? So when we look at the term of coercion in this case, it's the act of using pressure, alcohol, or drugs, or force to have sexual contact with someone against his or her will. And it includes persistent attempts to have sexual contact with someone who has already refused. While these incidents don't fit the strict definition of what we understand to be sexual coercion in this documentary, I think it could be considered an offshoot. I mean, he's definitely has like these attempts. There's like little bits of pushback, but he's then pushing back on his side to get them to do that by manipulation and what he's saying to them. But I, I just thought that was interesting to kind of compare and contrast. Well, because it's this sort of unknown entity, right? So we're looking at all these factors that the idea of sexual sadism popped up for me. And that term refers to when an individual experiences sexual excitement from inflicting physical or psychological suffering on another person. And to me, this seems to be the most accurate description of what the perpetrator of these third party assaults is doing. And we can further distance this from a kink or a paraphilia in that sexual sadism that causes significant distress or substantially interferes with daily functioning, harms another person, or involves someone who is not given consent, that's criminal. Like that is yeah. criminal, that's inappropriate. But all of these descriptors are spot on for what occurred here. And I really want to be clear before I get any emails, <laughs> sexual sadism <laughs> is separate and distinct from co-consensual BDSM sexual practices or relationships. And sexual sadism is diagnosed in fewer than 10% of rapists, but in 37 to 75% of people who have committed sexually motivated homicides. I find yeah. that very interesting. Yep. So sort of back to the documentary, they bring in a social psychologist, of course, to talk about the Milgram obedience and authority studies. And they do a pretty good job of providing an yeah. overview, I think, for what the audience attention span would be. But we want to review the basics here for you guys. And I think maybe we talked about this in our authority and active bystandership episode. So if you want even more in depth, you guys can go back to that one. So the Milgram experiments were on the phenomenon of human obedience to authority figures and consisted of a series of social psychology experiments that were conducted by Dr. Stanley Milgram while he was a professor at Yale University. And the experiments measured the willingness of study participants to obey an authority figure who instructed them to perform acts conflicting with essentially their personal conscience. That's what they were trying to look at here. Right. And the participants included 40 men in the age range of 20 to 50 years old. Very interesting because at that time, everything was normed on that population. Everything was nor yes. normed on, on white men more yep. so than anything else. Milgram constructed the test to have participants from a wide range of occupations, as well as participants who would also have contrasting levels of education. And each of these study participants was told that they were assisting 
in an unrelated experiment and that they were needed to administer electric shocks to another unseen participant who was described as a quote unquote learner. So this test was ostensibly about different techniques for motivating learning. And in this fake test, the unseen learners were being punished for wrong answers by having an electric shock administered to them. Of course, these electric shocks that were administered by the unknowing participants were fake, but the fake electric shocks were allegedly increased to levels that would have been fatal had they been real. And they were presented as being life-threatening through the process of the test. Yep. The results of Milgram's tests certainly have contributed to the field of behavioral and social psychology, just as many tests from the 60s did that are completely unethical today. We have learned a lot from them, but the results were really staggering when, when we look at this. The experiment found that a significantly high number of test participants or subjects would fully obey the instructions that would, if legitimate, administer shocks going up to 300 volts and 65% of the participants going up to the full 450 volts. So this wow. was where basically the person wasn't screaming anymore. There was like a thud and then silence. <laughs> yeah. So again, like playing this up as if they had essentially killed someone and you can't make your experimentation subjects think they killed anyone anymore. And Dr. Milgram first described his research in a 1963 article in the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology and later discussed his findings in greater depth in a 1974 book called Obedience to Authority and Experimental View. Yeah, and there is a videotape of it that is used in the documentary. However, you can see all of it for free on YouTube. You can see it. It's really disturbing because even in this grainy, poor quality, black and white footage from decades ago, yeah. you see the confusion on people's faces. You see them sweating. You see people going into a fugue state, like not really knowing what to do, except that they're supposed to follow instructions. Uh -huh. And and there is also report that many of the participants were absolutely traumatized by this process, which is why we don't do that anymore. We don't, we're not going to traumatize our test participants in order to get knowledge. We're just going to have to find another way to do that. But going back to the timeline of the documentary, after some impressively dogged police work that includes unrelenting calls to the phone company, the detective, like we said earlier, is able to determine that the number of the calls came from is not actually existing. He finds himself in this frustrating circular conversation with the phone company rep who should have at least sent this all the way up the ladder, or maybe it was. You don't get a lot of explication in the documentary about who he was talking to, but it is implied that at some point that representative who he describes as a female did really start to open up to him and get more information. I think as they were convinced how serious this was. So it's finally discovered that the perpetrator was making the calls using phone cards. It's a step forward, but then the detective is told that the ID and routing numbers on the cards don't actually mean anything, which is completely bewildering. Like, why do you have all these numbers and a barcode on there if it doesn't mean anything? After more consultation with the phone company, he gets another break because the phone company didn't want to admit that it wasn't public knowledge, but the information on the back of each card allows tracking, mm -hmm. a lot of tracking. And this was a direct result of security efforts that were put into place after the 9-11 tax on the United States. It was an increase in surveillance because phone cards were so ubiquitous at the time prior to everyone having a cell phone for making phone calls. So 
The detective now has some real solid information. He is able to determine that these cards that were used were purchased at Walmart. And further, he's able to narrow down which Walmarts it is in Florida. And even further, he's now able to contact those two places and start searching video evidence of the times when the cards were purchased. Yes. So I think we can also talk here when we're looking at behavior of the crime, behavior of the, the offender in this case is just about how good he was at grooming mm -hmm. and how good he was at the very quick brainwashing, I guess yeah. is a way to put it, you know, in a small period of time, being able to gain the trust based on the authority that we talked about. But there's also the the grooming behaviors that he participates in where while we generally think of grooming behaviors as exclusive to the manipulation of minors by adults into sexual assault, grooming can also be the process of emotional and intellectual manipulation in the attempt to take advantage of a victim for any number of reasons and by anyone of any age, really. In essence, grooming is the process of normalizing inappropriate behaviors under the false impression of trust, of caring, or any other primary benefit that is for the secondary gain of the perpetrator. Oof. I mean, <laughs> I guess the reaction I'm having to what you just said is you're so spot on. He is really good at this. He and is I don't, very I don't, good. I, like you loathe this individual so much, especially once you get eyes on him because he fits this stereotype in so many ways of just a, a really sick individual, like, mm -hmm. you know, just there are physical things that I really want to dive into that actually would probably uh -oh. yeah. be in the gray area, but I don't want to do too much of that. But let me reorient here. Okay. In these hoax calls, the perpetrator starts with the presentation of himself as an authority figure, which is a policeman. He has a really well-crafted introduction and he engages a part of his plan in what we would call cold reading. So cold reading is a term that comes from mentalism shows, from mm -hmm. carnivals, and also a lot of, and I know this is a controversial opinion, so please don't send me hate mail, psychics. You know, whether or not you believe that that phenomenon exists, it absolutely is true that there are con artists out there who will take advantage of people by presenting to be trance medium or a psychic. Yes. I mean, it's, they're, they're con artists. But what they do is they cold read and they start off with throwing out very vague information and people latch onto it. So what this perpetrator was doing is saying, yeah, one of your employees, uh, dark shoulder length hair, petite, and then someone feeds the name. Oh, you mean Abigail? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's probably her. Bring her. You need to bring her back. So he's cold read with these general descriptions and even not so great because in the example of our victim, she was saying, I'm not blonde. I have light right. brown hair. I'm not blonde. I am not short. I'm this. And, and it didn't matter because he had already created this relationship with the person who answered the call in order to gain their trust. So in the primary case presented, the McDonald's manager's fiance is covered in to cover for her while the restaurant business continues to, you know, escalate because it's right at rush hour. So again, I, inexplicably, he immediately goes into the scenario. Maybe it's because it's a completely unknown environment for him. And despite his horrifically bad judgment and victimization of the young woman, it's likely that he was primed by Ms. Summers. I think that Donna Summers, which 
hilariously. I know. The, name of the, the one McDonald's chuckle manager. in this. <laughs> yeah, the one legit laugh. This is the police. They're really serious. They're on their way. I need you to do this. I think that probably she psychologically primed him oh, I unknowingly. Think so and so he kind of jumps in. But that's no excuse for the level of sexual assault that he then engages in. And thankfully, he paid for it. He paid for his crime. Yeah, true. I mean, it does it this this psychological manipulation, grooming just sort of gets trickled down when you start getting the other people involved. And like we said, I mean, it goes horribly wrong. He engages in these wildly inappropriate acts that as a fully functioning adult, he had more than enough insight not to follow through on oh, yeah. you know, the corporal punishment on a naked female and then the sexual coercion on the victim. But let's go back to the the timeline in the documentary. The detective goes to the contract company providing custody staffing or the jail or prison guards in this area where these Walmart cards were purchased because that's what they think he does for a living based on his attire. Within a very short time, they're able to identify the perpetrator as David Stewart, who once they get to his place of work and he's on duty and they pull him in and start interrogating him, he basically says, quote, thank God it's over, end quote, but then clams up, denies, and eventually through his brother gets a really good high-powered attorney. And meanwhile, the Mount Washington detective gets an arrest warrant and extradites Stewart to Kentucky to face the charges. So I thought, you know, they did all this great investigative work. They identified him. And then I feel like, and I know this is just a documentary. I don't know all the behind the scenes. It seemed like everything went really fast after that. Like they had the yeah. bare minimums to kind of get him charged and extradited. And maybe that's why this ends up unraveling. I don't know. I just, I felt like it was, it was, it was a, not a very stable, strong case at that point. Yeah, I think, you know, you're spot on because in prep for this, I, of course, you know, I wanted to watch the doc, get as much outside research as I could, but I also wanted to see what some very smart people who post online. I mean, I, I think Reddit is kind of an amazing community. Yes, there's a lot of bullshit there, but um, there were some really insightful things that were said about this case. And one of them was saying that that the, this was the bungling of the detectives as much as you like them yeah. for being so dogged and determined to find out who was doing this, that they absolutely skipped over several steps. They absolutely should have engaged in surveillance to try and catch him again. So I thought yeah. that was interesting that, you know, another party, and there are a lot of people that are, you know, posting online about true crime, but this was sure. a particularly insightful thing. Another thing I would say also is that, you know, this is something that is probably not really widely known by the public at large, but for those of us that have worked in incarceration settings, and, you know, I've worked in incarceration settings, both a jail and a prison here in the state of California, we don't contract our services. You are a state or a city or a county employee. And I'm not saying that that's always the best deal. There are problems all across the board with administrative, big bureaucratic organizations, but there are way worse problems that emerge when you contract your services for security out to private firms, because what they do is they, in the interest of saving money, will hire people for the lowest amount of money. Thankfully, there are people who will say, I'm not going to go work in your maximum security prison for this amount of money. You've got to be kidding. Forget it. Right. But there are a lot of other people who will go in to those situations that are completely not capable of doing the job. And 
wouldn't pass a psych exam. And I would think that's probably who David Stewart is, is that someone, this is the only job he could get because for other reasons that come up, right? You get what you're paid for, right? And if his motivation is, I want a job that makes me feel important and powerful because that's my trip, that's my thing. And maybe the money is less important to him than getting to boss people around and get them to do what he wants to do. So again, I don't, no. And I, that makes sense. I didn't even think about the importance of this being contract work, except that, yeah, there's not a ton of oversight. People can just quit. They're not willing to stay and maybe be more well-behaved and make better choices because they have a pension on the line, you know, that sort of thing. So that's why you offer people really good benefits to get really good quality people. Who are qualified to understand the intricacies in working in a position like being custody. It's not, you're not just a guard, you know, you're not like a security guard hanging out on a corner of a building or something. And at the end of this episode, David Stewart's attorney sits down for an interview and you're like, holy shit, this guy has shit together. (laughs) This can't go well. You just get that impression that he's going to rip this case apart. And that's kind of the the cliffhanger they leave you on before we jump into episode three. So at the top of episode three, we learned that he does get bail. And so he goes back to Florida, right? Which is where he is from. And I think one of the most notable parts about this episode is that we see our friend Javier pop up. Yay, Javier. (laughs) Javier Leva, host of Pretend and Criminal Conduct, and the second time we have mentioned Javier in episodes just this month alone, because we raved about his Frank Abagnale series in our Pathological Lying episode. But Javier is the perfect person to have here. One, he's just so talented in his show and how he does his research and production, but he also has looked into this case well before you know, we knew really what it was. And I think him lending his voice to it is just adds a lot of bona fides to it because he does nothing but really look at these cases where there's scams and con people involved. So it was lovely to see him and his work highlighted. But yeah, we start to get into an actual trial in this episode. So David Stewart is out on bail and he's got a high-powered attorney. Mm -hmm. He is extradited to Kentucky to be tried on several charges, including impersonating a police officer and solicitation of sodomy. So surprisingly, the total amount of time that he could have served for those charges would only have been 15 years, which is mind-blowing given the level of assault and destruction that he wrought during this time. He was tricky, and he was, I hate to say it, smart about it. Like, it's taking this element, this removal, direct removal of the incident happening. I mean, he really thought this through because I think this was on his mind. Also, if I get in trouble for this, what could this possibly be? And I think these were really not creative in a bad way, like they're just trying to throw anything at the wall, but I think they were creative charges to bring against him that fit. Right. Oh, absolutely. I don't I don't I don't know. I will respect your opinion. I don't maybe I have a bias. I don't want to give him credit for being smart. Mm. I want him I want to I'll give him credit for being devious. Yeah. Because I think that it wasn't necessarily thinking about how can I create something I'm not going to get in trouble with. It's more like how can I create something that I'm going to get off on. But I don't know. I mean, and who would know? And obviously, we're probably (laughs) never going to know because on October 31st, 2006, Stuart was acquitted. And I had to back it up, you know, the Netflix dot, you know, where you're 15 seconds back because I was so blown away. He was acquitted of all charges. 
with defense and prosecution attorneys speculating that a lack of direct evidence, such as a recording of the caller's voice, was the main factor that led the jury to finding him not guilty. I mean, I get that he had a great attorney, but I, I, I'm really challenged with this because they found the calling cards that were used for nine of the calls within his home. They lined it up with his work schedule. Yeah. Showing that the calls were made when he was not at work. I know. I, That's direct evidence. It's tangible evidence. So it must have just been not as consistent, direct, tangible evidence. Right. Or maybe, I mean, I would. it would be fascinating to hear what the jurors thought. Yeah. Because they may very well have been in a position where they thought there's just not enough to convict. I don't know. Yes. And I I think they were probably easily swayed by, well, the burden should fall on the people who were doing these things, you know, following through with it. I think it's just such a wild case to wrap your head around that they probably got pulled in a lot of different directions and he had a really great attorney. And to them, it felt like reasonable doubt. But uh, no, pro- very, very well stated. It's it's a tough one for sure. But Stewart remained a suspect in similar cases throughout the United States and investigating police departments around the country have asserted that after his arrest, the scam calls stopped. There's your evidence for you. So what we were able to find out about Stewart is that he's a married man with five children and an individual who was, how shocking is this, Shiloh? We could not have possibly have seen this coming, right? Hmm. He was obsessed with criminal procedures and being a cop and had a history of multiple applications to local law enforcement agencies. In fact, when they searched his home, they found hundreds of police magazines. They found journals. They found notes about criminal procedure, which is very strange, like he Uh was studying on his own, Uh and numerous applications to law enforcement agencies in the area, which I think is is interesting because I want you to, I wonder if he couldn't pass the psych exam. I would love to know, but he, it was probably some part of the background or the psych, at least some part of the process, right? Yeah. So it's it's very concerning. I think when you learn that, that this puts this into perspective, that this is someone that desperately wanted to be on that side of it, wanted to insert themselves as being knowledgeable about criminal justice procedures. And the best job they could get closest to that was a contract prison guard. So we hear this time and time again with all types of horrific offenders. We hear about, you know, aligning yourself like this with mass violence perpetrators. You guys know that the criminal profilers are always talking about it when they're talking about serial homicide offenders. It's, it is problematic behavior in hindsight when, when we look at this. So I'm, who knows what kind of damage this person could have done had he not been at least just brought to trial on these charges, put on the radar, you know? I couldn't help chuckle when we look at the video footage of him and he walks in with the aviator sunglasses and a bushy mustache. It's yeah. like, really, dude? Wearing like, his work pants. Like, yeah, that's just something his... you don't do if you're a cop. <laughs> well, he did put on like a hoodie, like it was a t-shirt right. and a hoodie. So, but still, again, a, any legit cop is not going to take a chance like that at all, wearing any part of their off their on-duty uniform when yeah. they're off-duty. Right. And then we turn to the civil lawsuits. So our victim from the top, from the Mount Washington McDonald's, she sues McDonald's for $200 million for failing to protect her 
during the ordeal. And her grounds for the suit were twofold. One, that McDonald's corporate headquarters were aware of the danger of a possible hoax because they had defended themselves against lawsuits over similar incidents at its restaurants in other four states. So like this was already happening and already on the radar of not just McDonald's, but some other fast food restaurants. And then secondly, that McDonald's had been subjected to similar hoaxes at least two years before the Mount Washington incident, and they had not taken appropriate action as directed by their own chief of security and as outlined in his memo to McDonald's upper management. So they're, you know, I think they talk about really small easy ways that McDonald's could have warned and protected their customers when they found out that this was a thing that kept happening. Yeah. And their employees. I mean, yes. It's, oh, look, I'm sorry. I, That's what I meant. <laughs> okay. Well, I look, I, you know, as I've sort of implied in earlier parts of this, this episode, I have a lot of feelings about how Miss Summers handled that yeah. or, or didn't handle it. But now this additional information comes in, you can fault her for having such incredibly poor judgment, but she also absolutely does have a point that they knew that this was happening and they chose not to send out an urgent memo to all of the franchise holders across the U.S. Like how difficult would that have been just to say, you know, like I know that working for a government agency, whenever there is any whiff of something that's like this, it becomes integrated into our biannual knowledge base of we have to sign that you have been told that this is a now a change in policy. You're acknowledging and they're doing it for legal reasons because they don't want to get sued in case we screw something up. So McDonald's being this enormous multinational corporation, it's just it's unbelievable that they didn't take action when they should have. But they fought back against Summer's case by citing four points, that she as a manager had deviated from the company's management manual, which actually did prohibit strip searches. And okay. therefore, McDonald's should not be held responsible for any action of Summers outside the scope of her employment. That's a le that's legit. Yeah, I agree. How much did she remember? And there was coercion, but yes. Okay, so that's pretty clear. And then point two, workers' compensation law prohibits employees from suing their employer, which is kind of crazy even to this day. Yeah, no kidding. Point number three, Ms. Summers' fiance, who actually performed the acts, was not a McDonald's employee. Good point. Mm -hmm. And number four, but most infuriating for me, that the victim did not remove herself from the situation contrary to common sense. That's bullshit. Yeah. Absolutely bullshit. Yeah. For me, this brings up, why is it in the manual that we have to prohibit strip searches. <laughs> like what has happened before? <laughs> uh, I don't know. That gives me a icky feeling well, that that has to be laid out. You, but if you've worked in fast food, yeah, the abs I can absolutely see that because some manager on a tear is going to absolutely, I mean, that's also what made this such a convincing scenario that he perpetrated on these victims is that there are employees sometimes who rip off customers. So, sure. yeah. you know, they they have their they have their policy that you can't do this, which is great. But then they should have outlined that this is happening across the country. Don't let it happen on your watch. Don't let it happen at your store. I also had a thing too, just going back to the the evidence, the trial itself, they spoke in the documentary about one of his alibis for several of the call times was a family member that his wife oh, was his okay. alibi, which I'm even surprised that that would be allowed as an alibi in any way. Yeah. And then you pulled 
the information, like if you're searching for information on this on Wikipedia, it's not going to be the McDonald's strip search. It is called strip search hoax scam. And the Wikipedia does a great job at providing a really exhaustive list of the most prominent calls that occurred during that 10-year period. And I'd go so far as to say that the intensity and chronicity of these attempted calls indicate to me a very severe pathology on the part of whoever the perpetrator is, because Mr. Stewart has been, by virtue of his experience in a court of law, has been found to not be guilty of these right. charges. Right. So while he wasn't found guilty, I can guarantee you that he is experiencing or the perpetrator is experiencing leakage somewhere else in his life. No, there you go. Because yeah. I don't think that you have this severe or chronic of a pathology without it affecting some other area. Yeah. Well, and I guess the one little piece of justice that came to this is that the victim from the McDonald's did get $6 million yeah. in her lawsuit. And she testified and put herself out there against this giant corporation, you know, when she couldn't find justice in her perpetrator being held responsible. So, you know, it, it was something, it wasn't what they were asking for. But kudos to her for standing up for what was right after being victimized the way she was. I just, I know there's so many other victims around the country that never got that, never got They'll any never compensation. They'll never get anything. Yeah. yeah. They won't, they won't get anything. And I, I'm glad she got paid. I, I wonder if there was an NDA that was attached to the settlement. Most likely there was because she didn't participate in the interview and they didn't refer to her not participating in the interview in right. the way that they did refer to Mr. Stewart refusing mm -hmm. to participate. Yeah. I gave it four brains. I thought it was fascinating material, but it left me feeling cheated on several fronts with this much research interview production. I would have I would have hoped for for more. I would have liked it to be a little bit more meaty as it were. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought so too. I gave it three brains, not my favorite. You know, I think interesting, like I hadn't heard of this before this documentary. I feel like also, you know, the, the name of the title that it has made it seem like something else. You're, it's very intriguing for sure. And it was okay production wise, you know, yeah. it, it, I think the stories need to be told and I'm so glad these victims have decided to share their stories with us. So we can truly see some of these psychological tactics that get used on people by malicious perpetrators that are seemingly really hard to understand. So again, like this being duped and how powerful something like authority and compliance is. We, we really just saw, unfortunately, this sociological, psychological experiment being played out at the expense of these victims. Yeah, I guess if there is anything that makes it a little bit more valuable as a piece of media is that this is not something where there's an unsolved murder and you're just going to wag your finger at a young woman and tell her, well, don't go there by yourself at night. Right. You know, because we hate doing yeah. that. Yeah. This actually can serve as a cautionary tale that you can talk about with other people and you can say like, and it's not about placing yourself in a dangerous situation. It's about not responding to a phone call, not responding to authority mm -hmm. that is not legit because yeah. you have the right to say, yeah, I'm in the middle of lunch rush. You can, when you will talk, when you get your ass over here, bye, click. Yeah. Or let you me know. call, you can always, always say, I'm going to hang up and I'm going to call the police department directly. Yes. Always. Absolutely. So it, it's just like a credit card scam, right? Like you get a phone call, you get an email, 
don't open that link. Right. You can hang up, you can call them back or go to the website, go back to the original source. So cool. All right. Well, I think my little COVID aftermath of my froggy voice is the only thing hanging around. So thanks oh, for bearing with me. <laughs> did great. Ah, oh, thanks. All right. So that wraps up January. Very exciting. We'll see. Yes. We have already some great episodes planned for you for February. Going to look at some interesting psychological phenomenon that we haven't before. And be sure to get us any ideas or recommendations for vintage cases or for documentary episodes. So I also wanted to add something that a lot of people might not be aware of. We have our outro that talks about our Patreon and swag and all this other stuff. But I'm not sure that everybody knows that our YouTube channel for Behind the Couch has has all of our previous episodes there listed and you can subscribe to it. So you can join us on Discord, but you can also, if you're enjoying the show here, you can subscribe to that YouTube channel to get alerted to when our new episodes drop. So Meaning even if our you're new not a, live episodes. So yes, talking about? So, yeah. yeah, exactly. So even if you're not a Patreon member, eventually you're going to have access to that YouTube totally. channel. So head over there, look for Behind the Couch and hit that little button. It'd be great. There you thank go. You. Yes, thank you. We've had so many new subscribers lately to YouTube. Yeah, so pretty cool. I, well, I, wait. Hold on. What? I know this is a long episode, but I have to also say why we have so many new subscribers. And that is because of you and your fantastic work on the podcast and YouTube channel for Surviving the Survivor. Yeah, it's been fun. Well, it's you have been incredibly and in, you've been a great part, a very high quality part of that already good podcast. So the reason and the responses you've gotten back from everybody from fans of true crime and also fans of law enforcement. Like, yeah. you know, it's just, you've gotten a lot of positive feedback and it's wonderful. Well, I think that's going to be a direct segue to our next episode, our first one up in February, which will be on survivor guilt. And we're going to talk, I just have it in my mind already of a little bit of an intro of one, why we're picking the topic and two, why you and I have talked a little bit on some of these outlets and platforms about a current case going on because that's not something we normally do. <laughs> but stay tuned, you guys. We'll talk about that in the next episode. So we will see you then on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye, folks. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. 
And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. <laughs>